Good morning. My name is Jay Freimeyer, and I'm one of the pastors here at the church. Uh, I'll, I will also say, if I haven't had the chance to meet you, I would love to meet you after the service. So grab me, say hi. I'd love to take you out for coffee and get to know you a little bit. That'd be, that'd be great. Uh, like Jeremy said, we'll be in 1 Corinthians 16 this morning. So I invite you to turn your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians 16. This morning, we will conclude our series on the book of 1 Corinthians, which we began way back in January of 2020. And so if my math is correct, we've been in this book for 36 weeks, so it took us a year and a half to do a 36-week series. Now, it was a wild year. We don't have to relive all that. Uh, But here we are at the conclusion of this book, and I'm excited to wrap that up with you guys this morning. So let's, uh, let's go ahead and read our text for this morning. We're going to start in verse 13, and the words should be on your screens here as well. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, <clears throat> act like men, be strong. Let all you do be done in love. Now I urge you, brothers and sisters, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, because they have made up for your absence, for they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. The churches of Asia send you greetings, Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed." Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Father, again this morning, we thank you for allowing us to gather in this place to worship you. We thank you for your word and how it speaks to us even today. We ask that you would send your spirit to meet us in this place this morning, to convict us, to challenge us, to encourage us in the word this morning, and ultimately to make us look more like Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. So sometimes I think in memes and GIFs. Okay, now let me explain. Those of you who are in text message conversations with me, you know you get a lot of GIFs from me. Okay, I get a little too excited when I'm responding to someone and I just know like, oh, this is the perfect one. Like, have you had that feeling before? Like, you know This is the response that I could never say in words, but if I send this gif, oh, it's the best. But I don't just do that in text messages. Like, I'm having a conversation with you in person, and I'm scrolling through the Rolodex in my mind of like, oh, this is the the one. Like, this is the perfect gif. And I see some of you acknowledging, like you're smiling out there, that, that you do this too. So I appreciate that. So here recently, I've been thinking about what is the perfect gif response to the book of 1 Corinthians? And not just a study on the book of 1 Corinthians, but more specifically, for our church in this season, over the past year, like what is the perfect response for this? I think about the events of the past year and just how crazy it's been. We don't have to relive them all, but you can think like, yeah, it's been a wild year. And then I consider the the historic weather we've had here over the past year, the crazy ice storm in October where trees were literally just falling over and collapsing on houses. We had the historic freeze in February where in Oklahoma, we almost ran out of natural gas. How does that? I still don't know how that happens. Um, And then a lot of us are getting our roofs replaced right now from the hailstorm just a month ago. Like, this is just bizarre. Now let us consider, because it's been 
a year and a half since we started, I want us to consider some of the things that Paul was dealing with with this church because I think we might have forgotten a lot of it. Much of his letter to them is correcting their conduct, their poor theology, their lack of love, their lack of unity towards one another. Consider some of the issues that Paul has addressed. This church was fighting over who is the best teacher, who is the best leader. They fought over who baptized them. They were arrogant and prideful. They refused to exercise church discipline, if you remember, on the man who had a relationship with his stepmom, and they were allowing him to remain in good fellowship in the church and didn't want to call him out because of his influence. They sued each other. They engaged in prostitution. They held incorrect views of marriage and divorce. They failed to consider the weaker brother or sister in matters of conscience. They dabbled in things that led to outright idolatry. They engaged in incorrect practices during worship. When they came together for the Lord's Supper, some left drunk, others left hungry because all the food was gone. They abused the gifts of the Spirit. And then when you add in the gender-related issues that are even more complex today, this book kind of becomes a powder keg, does it not? Women in head coverings being told to remain silent in worship, and this morning, we just read, and I think it was verse 13, we're told to act like men in a book that's addressed to both men and women, which we'll get to in a moment. So walking through 1 Corinthians at this moment, in this time, and trying not to blow up our church feels to me like Keanu Reeves in The Matrix when he's doing the backbender and he's like dodging the bullets, like you know what I'm talking about? Or like I, I, I also thought of like Nicolas Cage in Con Air when there's like this massive explosion going on behind him and he's walking out like he's got this smirk on his face like, yeah. But, it, but it, for me, I picture Jeremy like preaching a sermon and like a controversial topic, like that's the topic and Jeremy's like, yeah, I'm, I did that in the Lord, you know. So not, not that like his sermon was a disaster, but like there's just a lot of controversial topics like that for real like it's been very challenging and when you when you take the anxiety and stress that we come in with that we're feeling externally it can be very very tense now there was so much wrong in Corinth and if there's an opening at this church today people just aren't like pastors aren't throwing their resume at this church like they're probably saying hey the Lord's not calling me there right but what about Paul what is Paul's posture towards this church? What is, what is his demeanor towards this church? Now, I could take you to many places, but to focus in on our text this morning, we're going to look at the conclusion. We're also going to look briefly at the introduction. And so despite all that he corrected them on, like all of their issues, all of their messed up theology and lack of love and all of these things, I'm going to suggest that Paul's love for this young, immature, and broken church is oozing off the pages. And it's really, really hard to miss this, okay? So let's go back to chapter one. Just briefly, we're going to look at the introduction. Verse four, he says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. That in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you. He will sustain even this church to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now you may say, well, Paul is just being friendly, right? He's just being cordial. Doesn't he do this in all his letters? And actually, he does not. If you remember the book of Galatians, 
At the very beginning, he gives a very formal greeting. He says, hi, I'm Paul, grace to you. I'm writing to the churches in Galatia. And then immediately, he skips over the the piece about thanksgiving for them and the prayer over them. This is what he says in verse 6, Galatians 1. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ, and you're turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one. There's not another gospel, but you're turning to that. There are some who trouble you and they want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, I'm going to say it again. If anyone is preaching you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Now, Did you catch that? Verse 6, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you. Several years back, I remember preaching through uh, a series on the book of Galatians. And if you know me really well, like I, I don't have a good memory. So there is so much I've forgotten about the book of Galatians and the commentaries that I consulted. But there is one thing that I remember reading that, that I may never forget. So in regards to the stern rebuke at the beginning of Galatians 1, one commentator noted that not even in the book of 1 Corinthians... Does Paul come down so hard on a church where his typical thanksgiving and prayer would belong? Now think about that for a moment. Why would he say, not even in 1 Corinthians? Because any, follow, any rational follower of Jesus would think that if anyone deserves to not have that formal greeting of thanksgiving and prayer offered to them, it would be in Corinth. Like, it would be those people. He said, not even then Do you see that? But what does he say? Instead, he says, I give thanks to my God always for you. To this church, he says, I give thanks for you and the grace that was given you in Jesus Christ because the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. Now, when you know what's coming later in this book, that's kind of remarkable, right? Like You would think that they deserve to not have the thanksgiving and prayer over them, but he says he's thankful for them. Now, let's skip ahead to chapter 16. This is what uh, we looked at just last week. Uh, 1 Corinthians 16, starting in verse 5. Paul says to this church, I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. He wants this church to help him. Then in verse 7, for I don't want to see you just now, just in passing. I hope to stay with you for a while. I want to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. And then down to our text this morning, verse 17. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus because they have made up for your absence. They refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Down to verse 21. I, Paul, I'm writing this. He wanted them to know that he was the one writing this to them. He signs this letter. I'm writing this greeting with my own hand. Then in 23, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Now, does this sound like someone who's frustrated with this church, or he's angry towards them, or irritated at them. No, he loves them. He desires to be with them. He can't wait to see them. He's telling them, like, hey, as soon as I can, I am coming to you. Now, with this in mind, knowing how Paul feels towards this church, what are his final words to them? We're gonna look at a few themes that pop up in these few verses And we'll discuss what that means for us today. So first, we're going to see that he's encouraging them. And I think he would say to us this morning, finish well the race that is set before you. Finish well the race that is set before you. In verse 13, he says, be watchful, stand firm in the faith. 
He says, act like men. So let's, let's go ahead. Let's address it. He's talking to men and women, but he says, act like men. So at other places in the scriptures, this is going to be translated, have courage. This word is, we've only seen it one time in the entire New Testament, and that's right here. But when you see it in the Septuagint, which is the Greek Old Testament, so when the Old Testament's translated to Greek, you're going to see this root word, and there, like, think of Joshua, the book of Joshua. If you remember over and over in chapter one, he says, be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. Have I not told you? Be strong and courageous. That's this word. And so I'm just going to submit that this morning that we use that word, because I think that is the heart of what he's getting at. He is warning them that trials and temptations are coming their way, and he's saying, be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Be strong and courageous. Have courage in the face of danger. It's so easy to take our eyes off of Jesus and become distracted or fearful or anxious and be led away, uh, led astray by temptation. And Paul's exhortation here should cause us to open our eyes and realize that temptation is war. Several years ago, I can't remember if I've mentioned this before, but several years ago, Russell Moore wrote a book called Tempted and Tried, Temptation and the Triumph of Christ. And in it, he largely interacts with the temptation of Jesus by Satan in the wilderness. Chapter two of that book is entitled Slaughterhouse Drive, Why You're on the Verge of Wrecking Your Life, Especially If You Don't Know It. Now, that'll make you perk up, right? Like, hey, I'm listening now, right? He opens the chapter with discussing, uh, describing a technology that slaughterhouses have implemented and the reasons why. Now he writes this, high stress levels in animals can release hormones that can downgrade the quality of meat. So some of the largest corporations in the world hired a scientist to visit their meat plants with a checklist. She said her secret was the insight that novelty or newness distresses cattle. A slaughterhouse then, in order to keep the cattle relaxed, should remove anything from the side of the animals that isn't completely familiar. So workers shouldn't yell at cows and they should never use cattle prods because they are counterproductive and they're unneeded. If you keep the cows contented and comfortable, they'll go wherever they're led. Don't surprise them, don't unnerve them, and above all, do not hurt them. So this scientist developed a new technology that revolutionized the ways of big slaughter operations. In this system, the cows aren't prodded off the truck, but instead they're led in silence onto a ramp. They go through a squeeze chute, a gentle pressure device that mimics a mother's nuzzling touch. The cattle continue down the ramp onto a smoothly curving path. There's no sudden turns. The cows experience the sensation of going home, the same kind of way they've traveled so many times before. As they mosey along the path, they don't even notice when their hooves are no longer touching the ground. A conveyor belt slowly lifts them gently upward, and then in the twinkling of an eye, a blunt instrument levels a surgical strike, this is getting kind of gory here, right between the eyes, then transition, they're transitioned then from livestock to meat, now catch this, and they're never aware enough to be alarmed by any of it. I'm gonna say that again. They're never aware enough to be alarmed by any of it. And friends, brothers and sisters, this is how temptation works. C.S. Lewis gives similar examples in the screw tape letters. Satan doesn't want you to know he's trying to devour you. He wants you to be contented. He wants you to be comfortable when he's leading you astray. He wants to do it quietly and gently so that you're never aware enough to be alarmed by any of it. 
Paul recognized this reality, and he says to this young church, you be watchful. Like after all of these things he's described to them in this book, he's saying, hey, in the end here, here's what I want you to catch. You be watchful. You stand firm in the faith. You be strong and courageous. Now consider this. I want you to consider. If you were going to wreck your life, how would you do it? Like, I, I think it was Russell Moore. He was a professor of mine in seminary. I think it was him that would do this in, in uh, premarital counseling. I, we didn't have him for premarital counseling, but I believe that he told me once that he would sit people down in premarital counseling, and he would have them answer the question, if you were going to have an affair on your spouse, how would you do it? Now, that is an odd question to ask, right? But he wanted them to know where they were tempted to sin, and he wanted them to fight against it. So I ask you this morning, if you're going to be led astray, if you're going to wreck your life and fall away from the faith, stop following Jesus, how would that happen? How would you do that? If you were not to finish the race well, where would you fall? To ask it another way, if you were Satan, where would you tempt you? Now think on that today. That is worth your consideration, and your awareness, to be aware, to fight against these things. This time last year, there were folks in our church who, who loved the Lord dearly. They were faithful members of our body, and today they're no longer with us. So some of them left really angry over some things. Some left uh, over some what we would consider minor issues, and some today are no longer following Jesus at all. A year ago, I'm convinced if you asked them if that would come about the next year, I don't think that they would say that they, that they would believe that was going to happen. And so that could be any of us. So we need to be watchful. We need to stand firm in the faith. Take heed of this warning this morning. It would be so amazing if like all of us were known for great things. Like if we were the next Paul or the next Billy Graham or the next Corey Tinboom or the next William Carey, the father of modern missions, that would be amazing. But you know what else would be amazing? If we just followed Christ to the end. If we finished our race well, if we loved our spouses well, if we raised our children in the Lord, if we loved our neighbor as ourself, if we set an example in the workplace of what it means to work hard, if we weren't lazy, that would also be amazing. And that is enough. Along with these commands to be watchful and stand firm, he says, do everything in love. I believe that's verse uh, 14. In verse 22, we find the strong warning of the opposite of that. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. And that is perhaps a culmination of various places throughout the book where people are not just failing to love or demonstrate love towards one another, but they in fact have no love for God. So Paul says of these people, let them be accursed. So, so be warned by this. Do everything in Love. So number one is finish well the race that's set before you. Next, we see Paul emphasizing this mutual submission to one another. In verse 15, he says, I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, because they have made up for your absence. They refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to these people. So let's consider the names that he's mentioned here. Stephanus makes a cameo appearance in 1 Corinthians 1, and it's one of my favorite verses from Paul. 
He says in verse 14 of chapter one, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say you're baptized in my name. He says in 16 though, oh, I did baptize also the house of Stephanus. Beyond that, I'm just not sure. So Stephanus was a tag on here, right? In, in some translations, including the ESV, it's in parentheses. So I imagine that he's writing this out, and Crispus and Gaius, they must have been well-known. They were prominent in some way. He says, I baptized them. I know that. And then he's like, oh, yes, Stephanus. I, and many commentators think that Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus here are mentioned because they are the letter runners. So they brought the letter from uh, the church in Corinth to Paul, and they're taking this letter from Paul back to the church. It's possible, and I wouldn't believe this is true, that he's, as Paul's writing this letter, he looks up and he sees Stephanus, and he's like, oh, yeah, I baptized him. <laughs> like, like I, I'm hopeful that that's true, and it's very possible that it was. But there's even a level below Stephanus. He's like, yeah, there could have been more. I just forgot about them. So Stephanus is like middle of the road, like forgetfulness. Anyways, it's notable here because of this. Like for Paul, it didn't matter at all like who baptized Stephanus. Stephanus needed to be baptized. We believe that is a command from the scriptures. But he forgot that he even did it, right? But what was notable for Paul, what does he say? That he devoted himself to the service of the saints. He, the people in Corinth are to respect Stephanus and his entire household because he devoted himself to the service of the saints. That's what matters to Paul. I think it's also notable here that Fortunatus and Achaicus are mentioned. I bet if I gave you a few minutes to, for you to tell me what you think their names mean, you could figure it out. Fortunatus is a Latin name that just means lucky. And, a, and Achaicus or Achaicus, however you say it, his name just means, you guessed it, from Achaia. Okay, so names like this that were very impersonal were often given to slaves, okay? So it's likely, again, this is just an educated guess, but it's likely that they were former slaves. Now, this is also notable that Paul would mention them because he's saying, I believe, that at the foot of the cross and in the organization of the church, it does not matter where you've been. It doesn't matter where you've come from. It doesn't matter your gender or your stat, how much money you have. It does not matter. For Paul here, he's saying, these men have devoted themselves to the service of the saints, and they refreshed my spirit. These men brought joy to me because I love you as a church, and they came to me, and they refreshed my spirit. And he's saying they also refreshed yours. I think that's important. Give recognition to these Men. Now, it's important for churches, for even us today, to recognize and show honor to those among us who, who devote themselves to serving our body. And I don't believe, however, this is just saying like paid pastors or staff or deacons. I think it's anyone who is committing to serving our body. One pastor noted that Stephanus and his family and servants did not wait to be appointed. They appointed themselves to the ministry of service to fellow believers they spontaneously assigned themselves to help meet any need they saw among the saints. Their service was self-motivated and self-assigned. Now, there were times it was necessary for the early church to assign tasks, like, it, like with the appointment of deacons in, in Acts 6 with Stephen, but most work was done and still is done by those who simply see a need and meet it. Now, in thinking on this idea, it's such a beautiful picture, right? Like, I, I thought of so many of you, I thought of so many people in our church that that reach out and, and you say like, hey, there's this need and you don't say, hey, someone needs to meet this, I'm going to meet that. 
Like, that is such a beautiful thing for us. And so, like, without, like, trying to start naming names, because I figured, like, if I start to say, like, hey, here's this list of people, I'm going to forget, right? So there are two that I want to highlight, okay? And I don't know if they're here this morning. I haven't seen them yet. They would be embarrassed if they knew I was going to mention this. But two young ladies in our church, Rebecca and Serena, they have modeled this thing so well. They reached out to me back in September with an idea of how they could serve. Now, it's possible that I floated this out there. I don't remember doing that, but they reached out and they said, hey, we wanna start cleaning the church. And if, if I remember right, like at the time, they weren't comfortable coming back to the gathering yet, and so they were looking for ways to serve our body where it meant like they could remain safe. And so they asked me, like I, they, this is so crazy, they asked me this. They said, hey, can we clean the kids' area every other week and in the opposite weeks, we'll clean the rest of the church? To which I said, Yes, you can. Do. Yes, absolutely. Like that is that's amazing. But they 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 asked that, and so every single week, every single week, they washed our feet. They washed your feet by scrubbing our toilets and cleaning our kids' classrooms and vacuuming these floors. They did it because they love this church and they wanted to serve you. We should honor them. Now, this coming week, they're actually going to conclude their service to us in this way. Other commitments are leading them elsewhere. So you're actually going to start things, uh, start seeing things becoming dirtier. And so we probably need to hire a cleaning crew. We'll look into that. But as that happens, I want you to remember them. Like in a month from now when you're like, hey, these toilets need to be cleaned, I want you to remember, I'm so thankful for Rebecca and Serena that did that for us. Now, again, I could list so many others, right? MC leaders, key deacons, like key, key servants in our church. And I, I just wanna say as one of your pastors, like when I think of our church as a whole, I think of you doing this so well. I, I think of so many people saying, hey, there, there's this need here, can I help you with that? And maybe that's you saying like, hey, we're not good here. Like, but, but you're also saying, I wanna fill that hole. And sure, I think there are times where our staff feels a crunch, like, hey, we need more kids workers or we need this or that. But for the most part, you guys do this so well. So thank you. Like, I'm so thankful that that is true of us. When thinking on this very idea, commentator Stephen Um, who we've consulted throughout the course of this series, he said this, gospel refreshment is multidirectional. Gospel refreshment is multidirectional. So, so let me build that out a little bit. Like, you can come on a Sunday morning, and you can just sit in the chair and leave, and you can be refreshed, right? Like, it can come from top down. Like, you can sing songs uh, with us. You can take the Lord's Supper. We can confess sin together. You can hear a sermon preached, and you can leave, and you can be very refreshed. But refreshment also comes from deep friendship, from, from our missional communities, from faithfully serving our body and our community, Consider the ways in which you have seen or experienced these things and, and in ways in which the, the gospel is, uh, does give us multidirectional refreshment. So the final thing that I think Paul would say to us this morning, he ends this letter with, with this, is encourage one another often. Now this is a theme that's been coming up here recently over the past few months. We've kind of hit on this. And I want to show you this by building this idea out of gospel refreshment being multidirectional. I'm gonna do so by showing you the five examples we see of encouragement we're seeing in these few verses. I'm gonna do it quick. 
So when I say five, don't freak out, okay? Number one, Paul is encouraged by Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus. He rejoiced in their coming to him because they made up for the absence of this church. The broken church, you know, we've, we've gone over that, like how awful they were. He's refreshed by these men who have come to him because he loves them. He wanted to see them. Number two, the church is encouraged by Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus. They refresh my spirit, Paul says, as well as yours. So their constant uh, giving of their, like sacrificing to serve this church, it's a refreshment to their body. Number three, the church is encouraged by all the churches in Asia. The churches of Asia greet you, Paul says. Aquila and Prisca greet you, along with their house church. Their whole house church greets you. Not just regular greetings, he says. They're sending hearty greetings in the Lord, like special greetings. All the brothers send you greetings. He's saying, hey, Corinth, you've got an audience, and we are rooting you on. Number four, the church encourages one another. He says, greet one another with a holy kiss. So let's just briefly talk about this. This does not apply to us today. I tried so hard to think of the, an appropriate way for me to kiss someone else in the church other than my wife, and it's just, there's just, it's just not appropriate, right? But I think the spirit of the physical greeting still exists. And so let me explain. So like if you're fairly new to our church and someone approaches you, it's appropriate for me to shake out my, put my hand out and shake your hand. If, if you're, you've been around a while and you know someone, you're more familiar with them, it's appropriate to give a hug. Now, some, I, I, most mornings I may not want a hug from you, but like it's appropriate to, to, to show physical affection that's appropriate in greeting one another. So last week, you guys know that we lifted our uh, mask requirement here at church, and so many of you said, have said, like, hey, thank you. Like, we're so glad that, that this is true now, and we did that because we were, you know, adhering to local uh, government officials who wanted us to be safe. Uh, but why, why are you guys thankful for that? Like, why have we heard from so many of you that are like, I'm so glad this is true? Now, one, you're tired of wearing something on your face. I, I understand that. But two, I, and I think this is the bigger reason, it's because it is such an encouragement to see someone else smile, isn't it? Like I'm looking out at some of you, you're smiling right now, and that's, that's an encouragement to me. Even as I'm preaching this sermon, that is an encouragement to me. As we sing songs, as we stand and we sing songs together, it's an encouragement, and this is why I will always argue for our lights to stay up as we sing songs. It's an encouragement for me to see you across the room singing truths about God and worshiping God, especially if I know man, that, that guy or that girl, they're having a rough time right now, but they're here this morning and they are belting out praises to God. That is an encouragement to me. That is a physical expression of encouragement to one another. So let's keep doing that, Paul would say. Okay, fifth one, last one. The church is encouraged by Paul. So Paul's closing remarks are littered with exhortation but in a way that is meant to spur them on. Like you can feel his love for them and you can feel that he actually wants them to succeed. So I think all of us know how we can be scolded by someone, like and told what to do, and, and you really feel like, hey, this person doesn't actually want me to succeed. Like it feels like they're telling me what I need to do, but I don't think they actually want me to like be successful in this thing. That is not what Paul's doing at all. Paul's posture here is that he wants them to thrive, he wants them to flourish, and he's done all that he can to write in this way. Now, friends, is this not how we have been received 
by God through Jesus Christ. Like it would be totally appropriate for Jesus to say, look at all the things you've done wrong. Why can't you get it right? Like parents, sometimes you just wanna do that with your kids, right? Like, ah, the fifth time today, right? But how does Jesus treat us? What is his posture towards us? Jesus desires to see you flourish. He desires to see you thrive. He's going to call you out of sin. That is absolutely true, to leave our old ways behind. But he's doing so as one, the writer of Hebrews tells us, as one who can sympathize with your weaknesses, being tempted in the same ways that you have, yet without sin. Jesus has felt abandonment. He's felt betrayal. He's felt the loss of those he loves. And ultimately, he shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, while we were his enemies, Christ died for us. Christ died for you. This is what Paul just mentioned to them in chapter 15, right? As of first importance, he says in verse 3, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. This is the gospel. And why did he remind them of this? Go back to verse 1 of chapter 15. I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand, and get this, by which you are still being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you. So if you're a follower of Jesus in here this morning, this is the gospel you received, this is what you stand on, and this is what is currently saving you. Like, we don't graduate, like, we're justified by Jesus, and now, okay, I've got this by good works, like, I'm going to go earn this. No, to, to cover his basis, he, sa- he says in verse 2, this is what is still saving you, by which you are still being saved, the gospel of Jesus. Now, I don't know how hard your week's been or how hard your day's been. Maybe it's been a rough morning. I don't know how hard your month's been or your year. But if you are in Jesus this morning, you are secure. And these truths about Jesus and who he is are true of you this morning. You are redeemed. His body broken and his blood shed for you on the cross, it's enough. It's enough. You have been made right with God by the work of Jesus. You are currently right now being saved from the wrath of God because of what Jesus did for you 2,000 years ago. If you're not a follower of Jesus this morning, I wanna plead with you. I wanna plead with you this morning to believe these truths, to believe this in faith that though you're separated from God and he's holy, so anything I do wrong now breaks my relationship with God. He has never sinned. And because that's true, now I've got a problem. But Jesus has made us right with God by being the perfect sacrifice for sin. And so I'm asking you this morning to believe in faith and follow Jesus for the first time. Now, if that feels a little confusing to you, we'd love to have more conversations and to talk about what that means and how we believe and how we follow Jesus. But we'd love to have that conversation. For everyone in the room this morning, believe this, that because of Jesus, you're made right with God. Let's finish the race that's set before us. Let's mutually submit ourselves to one another for our edification and encourage one another often. Let's pray.
Father, again, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that, I gotta be honest, I'm thankful for the book of 1 Corinthians to read about the brokenness of this church that's littered throughout the book and all the ways that they got it wrong. But Paul has adopted your posture towards us for this church, and he loves them. It's so easy to see that he loves them. And even more so, God, we know that you love us. And so for my brothers and sisters in the room, I kind of want us to just feel that this morning, that despite our brokenness, despite our guilt, despite our shame, because of what Jesus did on the cross for us, you now love us in the same way that you love your son. So help us to feel that this morning. Help us to rest in that and help us to sit in that. And for, for those in the room who may not yet follow Jesus, I pray that this morning, right now, they would feel that love for them for the first time and that they would walk forward in faith and submission to you. God, we love you. We're so thankful for this book. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.